This is a Rooster Teeth production. September 8, 1989. Partner Flight 394, a Convair CV580 with 55 people on board, is on a charter flight from Oslo, Norway, bound for Hamburg, West Germany. When cruising at 22,000 feet over the North Sea, the crew is startled by an F-16 fighter jet flying towards them in the opposite direction. The fighter jet passes just 1,000 feet over the Partner flight, giving the crew a slight scare. Shortly after this unexpected encounter, the Partner flight begins losing control and plummeting toward the water below. Air traffic control sees the plane going off course and an unidentified object also slowly moving in the same area. What happened to Partner flight 394? What caused the crew to lose control of the plane? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello. And we are animated. We're animated. It's, we, we can officially talk about it. If you haven't seen it yet, we have a, a, like an animated miniseries called Aviation Explanation that highlights some key moments from past Black Box Down episodes. Key moments that are like particularly interesting seeing visual explanations of what happens. And also, it's like very clever and well done the way it kind of breaks it down. Um, Did you just call us clever? No, no. I called the animators. I called the animators clever. There's nothing clever about me. <laughs> You're clever too. You you get clever points, guys. No, 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 no. Uh, we don't know. We had a great team who worked on it. Uh, they all really, I think, did a fantastic job. They've been working on it for a while. I'm happy it's out there. You can check it out at our YouTube channel, which is Black Box Down. Or there's other episodes available on the Rooster Teeth YouTube channel, which is just Rooster Teeth. I assume it's in our link tree, Chris? Oh, yeah. I updated it earlier this week. Also, by the time this episode comes out, it'll be a little late for the holiday. We have some new merch in the store available, too. We made the uh, Your Bad Attitude Has Upset Me. We made it into a shirt and a mug. <laughs> it's good. I think it's really funny. I, I, I didn't think about putting it on a mug. Uh, the store team was like, what if it's on a mug? And the way they put it together, was like, oh, no, that's great. I would absolutely love to use that mug every day. And there's also our other great Black Box Down merch, like uh, our shirts and uh, just a regular Black Box Down mug, a little a decal, which I have on my laptop, mm-hmm. and just other cool stuff, which helps support the show. And You can find that all at store.roosterteeth.com or by visiting the link tree. Where, where, where can people find the link tree, Chris? Where is the, the elusive link tree? Well, it, it's in our every show notes, right? Oh, there you go. They could like scroll down and see it. Theoretically. Yeah, they, they, it's, it's, I'm just going to confirm, right, Dennis? Yes, it is. It's in there. It's Dennis confirmed. says it's there, so it's there. So yeah, every every episode, if you uh, click the little thing, it's like, more about this, it'll say, oh, Linktree, boom. You can find it all in one place. Thanks, Linktree. No, thank you to audience for listening and clicking. Oh, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Okay, back to the incident at hand. Today, we're talking about Partner Flight 394. It was a chartered flight from Oslo, Norway to Hamburg, West Germany. What does chartered mean? So it's like a, a private flight. Someone rented the entire plane, right? So it's like, so in this case, it was, I believe, a shipbuilding company had basically rented the plane. Okay. And they were flying, like, it was filled with people from that shipbuilding company. You think they'd just use a ship? <laughs> well, they, the, here's the deal. They were going down to christen a brand new ship that had just been built. Oh. So the ship wasn't ready. It had just gotten done. They were going to christen it. Okay. That's why they had chartered this plane. They were going down to uh, West Germany. Uh, Germany was still split at the time. So they're going to West Germany to, I guess, launch the boat. You know, one, one of the employees was going to give a, give a speech there. Every time I do anything, I christen it. Now, you do, don't you? Yeah. Mm. That, that must be nice. No, no, not. No. no. <laughs> it's not the same. Christen just makes things messier. With you, it's, it's exhausting because you have to do it every time. You're forced yeah. to. <laughs> so the flight was crewed by Captain Newt. Vaten, who was 59 years old with 16,779 flight hours, 
And first officer Finn Petterberg, who was 59 years old as well, and had 16,731 flight hours. So they were like neck and neck, same age, almost exact same flight hours. They were actually close friends. They'd flown together for many years. And the first officer, Peter Berg, was also the flight operations manager for Partner, the um, the company that owned the plane. Okay. So he's like, I don't know, like, <laughs> he's not just a pilot. He also, you know, does operations management for the company. Yeah, it's almost like he's like the owner, not the owner, but up there. Yeah, like real hands-on, I guess. There were two flight attendants, uh, a mechanic, and 50 passengers on board. The aircraft used was a 36-year-old Convair CV-580, kind of an older plane, with 36,943 hours and 15,116 landings. They say landings in the reports. We think that means cycles. Just maybe a different nomenclature. You know, the accident happened in Europe, pre-EU. So it's a maybe just a different nomenclature there. So the flight was scheduled to depart Oslo at 3 p.m. Oslo time, but was delayed almost an hour because the Civil Aviation Administration of Norway and the catering company suspended the airline's credit. Huh? The airline owed the catering company money. Oh. So... The, the, wait, wait. The catering company? Yeah. You know, like the people who supply the food for the flights. Yeah. No, I I just didn't know they had that kind of power. Well, I think it's like, you know, they're, they're owed money, so they complain yeah. to... You know, the aviation administration, aviation administration is like, oh, yeah, that's not right. Let's uh, let's deny them the ability to take off. So, yeah, they were grounded. <laughs> it, it gets a little more ridiculous, uh, yeah. Chris. The first officer and the captain go through their wallets to find money to pay the uh, the catering company. Because remember, the first officer is the flight operations manager. Yeah. So, yeah, they, uh, you know, they go through their wallets. They pull out their the money that they have. The first officer leaves the plane to go pay the bill. <laughs> that must be embarrassing, too, because they have this, like, private event uh well they don't have to tell the people in the back why they're delayed okay they probably just said hey we're delayed the first officer leaves and goes and pays the bill and then comes back mom says you're grounded if you don't pay up yeah you you owe us money so once they settled the debt they're given permission to depart so they took off just before 4 p.m and they climbed to their cruising altitude of 22,000 feet at 404 p.m they were cleared direct to the alborg vor which is just a waypoint to the south of denmark and about 12 minutes later, as they were climbing through flight level 180, which is about 18,000 feet, the crew was informed about strong westerly winds, so they changed their heading 10 degrees to the right. Okay. At 4.22 p.m., the Oslo Area Control radar service was terminated, and the crew was instructed to contact Copenhagen Area Control. So they're just being handed off from Oslo to Copenhagen because they're proceeding along their flight path. A minute later, flight 394 reached their cruising altitude and established contact with Copenhagen Area Control. Copenhagen confirmed they had radar contact, and this was the last radio contact anyone had with Flight 394. Mm. So up to this point, the flight appeared to be operating normally, and then, you know, the Copenhagen Area Control notices that the radar signals from the flight show an unexpected right turn, and then the flight disappears from the radar scope. Uh. Around the same time, they also notice another unidentified object on the radar that's in the same general area, but moving really slowly, and they're not quite sure what it is. Maybe they think that it's just a radar malfunction. Uh-huh. And then at 4.40, the controller tried to contact the flight several times with no response. Air traffic control in both Denmark and Norway initiated an investigation to locate the aircraft. Then at 4.59 p.m., the decision was made to inform rescue authorities in both Norway and Denmark. And it was discovered that Flight 394 had crashed about 10 nautical miles off the Danish coast, destroying the aircraft and killing everyone on board. Oh, no. The location of the search was based on radar information received and the position of floating victims and wreckage. And about 90% of the wreckage was recovered, and all of the victims except for five passengers were recovered. So 
the investigation was carried out by the Accident Investigation Board Norway. And one of the first things they found out was that the cockpit voice recorder had almost nothing recorded on it. Huh. It was still in that period of time where it was had like a 30-minute cycle? Yes. And this was also an older plane. 56, right? It was when it was built. So this incident happened in 1989, and the plane was 36 years old. Yeah, so it would have been built in 1953. So yeah, on top of it having a limited recording capacity, the way that the recorders worked back then were a lot more rudimentary. We're going to get into it in a bit. I'm going to talk about the flight data recorder for a second. The flight data recorder worked by... It had a long metal strip in it and like a needle that would scratch information onto it. Whoa. So, yeah, it wasn't like because it wasn't computerized or anything like, you know, built in 53. It was just a very different technology back then. Things are very different now. So the metal strip got scratched incorrectly. Well, it's funny you say that because, yeah, that did also happen in this case. What? <laughs> Then a little bit of a spoiler for something we're talking about later on in this episode, but they couldn't read the flight data recorder because it would like it had two lines of data and they didn't make sense. Like the people who were examining it were like, "We've never seen a flight data recorder that looks like this." this we yeah, they had to they had to contact. Uh, okay, we're kind of getting into stuff I want to talk about later, but I'm just going to mention it very briefly. The flight data recorder was so messed up and they didn't know what it meant that they contacted the company who made the flight data recorder. They didn't know what it meant, so they had to contact one of their employees who had retired because he, you know, he had worked oh a long time ago God. on this. And they called an old employee out of retirement, the guy who like made this system, and he was the only person who was able to decipher the oh flight data recorder because it was so out of the ordinary. And by this point, it was so old. That's crazy. And and, and at some point, that type of information would just be gone if he hadn't right. been still alive. Because he he was an older man, right? If he had passed away, like there's just this lack of uh, of knowledge because. This was this was such an old piece of technology by this point. I'm just afraid whenever in the future they're going to be like, what is this? It's some some technology and important incident. It's going to be like VHS tapes, and I'll be the only one who knows how they work. <laughs> I mean, there, a lot of that stuff is already happening. VHS tapes, even cassette tapes. Uh, there's just a lot of technology that's dying away. You know, that's just not really yeah. used anymore. That was ubiquitous for a while. Anyway, anyway, we're on a tangent. I'm going to get back to the copy voice recorder. Like I said, it had almost nothing recorded on it. And what they discovered was that it had stopped recording when the aircraft taxied into takeoff position and the engines were, you know, shifted up to high RPM. <laughs> so it recorded the stuff on the ground. And then when they, you know, accelerated to take off, then the copy voice recorder shut off. Mm. So they had to investigate this, right? And they find out that this malfunction was caused because of a modification that caused electrical power to automatically switch to the primary AC system when the engines were shifted to high RPM. So... Okay, I'm going to explain that in just a second. I'm going to read just another sentence or two here. Previously, this was done manually, but this installation caused low operational reliability. So because the cockpit voice recorder did not record anything, the board discovered that the left-hand main AC generator system was also not operating for this flight. The crew were aware of this and elected to run the APU during the flight to compensate. So, okay, so what this basically means is that, you know, the engines provide, we've talked about this before, the engines provide electrical power for the plane. Mm -hmm. During their pre-flight, before they take off, the crew's going through it and they discovered that their left engine is not actually providing, the generator's not working. It's not providing electrical power to the plane. Okay. And they need two generators to be able to fly legally. They know that the one in the right-hand side on engine number two is working. So they, the crew's like, well, what do we do? And they think, oh, I know. We'll just run the APU the whole time. You know, the auxiliary power unit that's in the tail, it's like a, just provides, normally it just mm -hmm. provides electrical power when they're on the ground. They're like, we'll just run the APU the whole flight. That way we have two generators and we can take off. 
What they didn't know is the cockpit voice recorder got its power only from the generator on the left oh. side. So uh, since it wasn't providing power and it wasn't working, the cockpit voice recorder wasn't functioning. It didn't draw power from the other generator or from the APU. But it started working once the plane got going. It was just during takeoff. Right. So it was working when they were taxiing. When you know, But once they really accelerate, once the generator okay. kicks up, that's when the generator malfunctioned on the first engine, uh. which they expected. And that's when it stopped supplying power to the cockpit voice recorder. They were aware of a, a potential issue, but they were, you know, they figured out this workaround and what they didn't realize is the workaround caused the cockpit voice recorder not to work. So uh, that's why in this case it didn't work. So obviously that kind of already gives a hint that something is a little amiss here. There's, you know, poor maintenance. The crew had to pay out of their pocket to pay a catering bill. <laughs> when you start putting these things together, you start to wonder what was the financial shape of this airline? Yeah. Were there other mechanical problems or were there other maintenance issues that could have potentially led to this incident? Because this is already off to a bad start. They haven't even taken off yet and stuff has already gone off the rails. So the investigation now shifts to look at the APU. It's like, well, the APU is normally not running the entire flight, but they decided to run it the entire flight. Let's examine the APU to see if it was malfunctioning or if anything wrong happened to it that could have led to this incident. So when the investigation looks at the APU, they discover that the front support for the APU was not the standard shock absorber specified for this installation. The investigation board also found that this support had failed before impact. Oh. And they saw evidence of indentations from vibration loads on or around the fracture. So this support had failed at some point, and they could see that the APU had been vibrating around, causing, you know, dents in the, in the fuselage around the area where uh, the support had failed. It was installed incorrectly without the right support and was just vibrating around the plane. And that's maybe why the, the pin was like scratching crazily. That's an excellent deduction, Chris. Yeah, yeah Yes, you are correct. <laughs> Normally, the flight data recorders are located in the tail of the plane. That way, you know, if there is a crash or impact, you know, the, the bulk of the force gets absorbed at the front of the plane. So normally, flight data recorders are placed near the tail. So yeah, you already, you, already, you already connected the dots on that one. That's why the flight data recorder had, you know, weird markings on it and double markings because of this unexpected vibration that was happening from the APU. I connected the lines. You did. You figured Not it out. <laughs> <laughs> so the APU turbine section had deteriorated as a result of heat erosion and cracks, and the turbine rotor had rubbed against the stator vein ring and cracking along the circumference of the ring, bent the stator in relation to the rotor, eliminating the clearance between the stator and the rotor on one side. So it's just saying that like the front part of the APU had come loose and was you know vibrating around mm -hmm. and, and, and banging a little bit, causing some extra vibrations and oscillations. However, all of this being said, I know this sounds all really bad and terrible. The board doesn't think this is what contributed to the crash. From what they can tell, this mount had failed some time ago. It didn't fail on this flight. That most likely this plane had been flying like this for a while. However, of course, most of the time, the APU is not on the entire time during the flight. But that being said, they don't think that this shock absorber failing contributed directly to this flight. They do, however, think that there was a strong possibility that the gyroscopic effect of the rotating mass could have affected the general vibration pattern around the empennage. And we've talked about the empennage before, just like the tail section of the plane. So okay. while a problem and something that's really bad 
this most likely did not directly cause this crash and this incident that we're talking about right now. This is just all lead up to understand why they didn't have a voice recorder. Right. This is also, you know, just kind of laying the... Circumstantial evidence. Right. Well, yeah. just circumstantial evidence that leads you to wonder, what was this airline doing? Why was the maintenance so bad on this plane? You know, there's, there's several things going wrong that are apparently pretty major. Well, I mean, they're not ma- not major enough to cause a uh, you know uh, a crash on their own. But as we've discovered, and as we've talked about in many incidents, it's never just one thing, mm-hmm. or it's almost never just one thing that causes an incident or a crash. It's a buildup of lots of little things going wrong, and we can already see there's lots of little things going wrong. Of course, paying your catering bill is not going to lead to a crash, <laughs> but that that just leads to a greater understanding of the mindset of well, hopefully, the company. Let's say catering company was run by the mob (laughs) be a real shame if something happened to your plane (laughs) so the investigation revealed that the rudder oscillations were beyond the normal maximum limit of travel when this occurs the rudder balance weights interfere with the shroud doors covering the gap between the vertical stabilizer and the rudder so i'm going to need to explain this a little bit on the tail on the vertical stabilizer you know what the vertical stabilizer is right it's like Mm -hmm. the what people consider the tail. It's the part of the plane. Uh, Pointy part. At the rear, right, where it's, that sticks straight up. It's vertical uh, up and down. On the very back of the vertical stabilizer is the rudder. It's a part that deflects left and right that helps turn the plane left and right. And the pilots control that with pedals. They step on the left side, the rudder deflects so that they kind of turn to the left. If they step to the right, the plane kind of turns to the right. Well, when they're doing that on this kind of plane, when they're stepping on the pedals, they're actually affecting weights that are held on cables in the vertical stabilizer that go up and down. And the weights going up and down is what actually turns the rudder left and right. Huh. So it's kind of like a pulley system? Yes, exactly. It's cables and pulleys. This is like a pre-power like power steering method? That's a good way to think about it. It's before what they would call it now is fly-by-wire. Usually it's fly-by-wire nowadays. But yeah, they're they're stepping on a pedal that's connected to a cable that's manually moving a pulley that's pulling a weight up and down that's deflecting the rudder left and right. Mm. So that's happening in the vertical stabilizer, but you don't see it because there's these doors that cover those weights up. They call them shroud doors. So they like if they need to do maintenance on the weights, they can open up these shroud doors in the vertical stabilizer, get in there. So these shroud doors cover the weights that are in the vertical stabilizer that control the rudder. So I'm explaining all of this to decode that last sentence. So I'm going to reread that sentence again now that I've explained these terms. When these oscillations occur, the rudder balance weights interfere with the shroud doors covering the gap between the vertical stabilizer and the rudder. So because the APU was shaking, it was moving the weights around in the vertical stabilizer. Right, which were hitting the shroud doors that normally cover them in the uh, vertical stabilizer. And like I said earlier, radar observations indicated the release of a slowly falling object when the plane was in cruise level, like I said, the radar saw something slow moving in the area as well. What they figured out at this point is that that slow moving object was probably the shroud doors from the plane. Oh, well, the doors to the control mechanism fell off. Right. So it's not like the doors that the people walk in and out of, but it's the doors that cover up the weights in the vertical stabilizer. So this oscillations had started happening, which caused the weights to start moving, which probably caused the doors to become destroyed, get torn away from the door structure and start falling. So this is the back of the plane, right? Right. The empanage, if you want to sound fancy. And so that, like these weights are banging against this shroud door. Yes. And then eventually it just bangs them off to where they fall off. The inside of these doors have like this sheet of honeycomb metal. I believe in this plane they were like aluminum. 
So that's why they're really good at reflecting radar. <laughs> so that's why the radar picks up this weird slow moving object. It's because oh. you know the shroud doors have this like honeycombed metal on them that is really good at bouncing the radar back. And that's why it's showing up at, at air traffic control. And since it's not a plane, that's why they can't figure out what it is. Like, yeah. what is this weird slow moving object? The shroud doors had popped off aluminum. the plane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is because that's what they whenever they uh, in World War Two, whenever they're trying to mess up people's radar, they just fling little shrapnel of aluminum in the air because it you know i'm really happy to hear you say that chris i thought about bringing this up but i thought maybe we were getting like <laughs> too deep into it yeah there's a there's like an anti-radar measure called chaff which is yeah just like shredded up pieces of metal and aluminum that can interfere with radar like radar guided missiles and stuff like that but i believe it's chaff is still used today as an yeah. anti-radar mechanism so yeah this essentially acted like chaff and it was bouncing off the radar and that's why the radar was picking it up Using the internet without ExpressVPN is like checking in your baggage at the airport without a lock. You think everything's private, but you never know who could be going through your underwear. When you go online without a VPN, internet service providers can see every single website you visit, and they can legally sell that information without your consent. Uh, They sell it to ad companies, tech giants, who use that data to target you. But ExpressVPN routes your data through a secure encrypted server for maximum protection, and it's super easy to use. Just open the app, press a single button, and it works on most devices, including routers, I've been using ExpressVPN myself for over a year and a half at this point. I've got it on all kinds of devices. I got it on uh, my desktop, I got it on my laptop, got it on my phone. And it's so easy to use, you'll feel like you're a super hacker protecting your stuff uh, using encryption. So don't let your ISP go through your digital undies. Get ExpressVPN. Secure your online activity by visiting expressvpn.com slash blackbox down today. That's EXPRESSVPN.com slash blackbox down. Get an extra three months for free. ExpressVPN.com slash blackbox down. If you're a fan of Black Box Down, you might try adding the Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation since obviously you're a fan of high-quality, fascinating podcasts, right? The Jordan Harbinger Show covers a wide range of topics, all with heavy-hitting guests. In recent months, Jordan's interviewed a YouTuber who exposes scammy gurus and a researcher who studies what makes people vulnerable to conspiracy theories. Uh, But there's something for everyone here, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia... But one constant throughout the whole podcast is Jordan's ability to pull bits of wisdom from his guests. So no matter what, you'll learn something here. We really enjoy the show. We think you will as well. There's just so much here. Check out jordanharbinger.com slash start for some recommendations or search for the Jordan Harbinger show. That's H-A-R-B as in Bravo, I-N as in November, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Is there anything better than sitting around a warm fire with friends? Yeah, there is. How about a warm fire without any smoke making your eyes water? You can have that with a smokeless fire pit from Solo Stove, and you can get a great deal right now with Solo Stove's hot holiday sale. It's just so great to have a smokeless stove. I mean, I, I'm happy. It's cooler outside now. I get to fire up my stove every so often when I want, sit outside around it. I love the Solo Stove so much, I bought one as a Christmas present. Don't tell the person I got it for. They don't know yet. But it's absolutely great. I love it. Can't recommend it enough. Create more good moments and lasting memories. Upgrade your backyard with a Solo Stove Fire Pit. They're brilliantly engineered with premium grade 304 stainless steel and a 360 degree airflow system that minimizes smoke. Let the gifting begin. So shop Solo Stove's holiday sale for huge site-wide savings now through the end of the year. Get $10 off with promo code BLACKBOXDOWN plus a lifetime warranty and free 30-day returns. Get an extra $10 off holiday deals at solostove.com. Promo code BLACKBOXDOWN. The board notes that when an aircraft travels at cruising speed, Excessive force is needed to force the rudder, you know, to move, and the control system is normally not strong enough to transmit power to the rudder. Therefore, the oscillations experienced in this part of the aircraft could not have been initiated by the crew or the autopilot. The rudder must have been affected by abnormal aerodynamic forces, impossible combination with mechanical force, 
that transmitted from the vertical stabilizer via the hinges. Or a jet flying really close by. Mm, maybe. So we're, we're, we, we will talk about that jet in just a second. So uh, you know what? You brought it up. Let's talk about it right now. So like I mentioned at the top of the show, the crew was flying and all of a sudden they see an F-16, which is, you know, a military plane flying in the opposite direction. And, you know, it just flies like a thousand feet over them. When the investigation first started, Partner was very quick to say, oh, it was the F-16. The F-16 was lying about how fast it was going. It was probably going faster than the speed of sound. And there may have been a sonic boom behind it that hit our plane and caused it to crash. That was my first instinct whenever you set it up. I was like, oh, it sounds like something happened with that jet. It like knocked something off or hit it or... Partner went all in trying to convince everyone that uh, it was that jet that caused the problem. The investigation board spent a lot of time going through this. You know, they obviously they have radar data they can go back through. They interviewed the F-16 pilot, you know, and went through, you know, all of the, the data that was recorded from that plane. There's a lot of math involved in this. They hire people who know a lot about physics to figure out, you know, wake turbulence and, you know, what was, you know, the amount of forces that were exerted upon the partner flight as a mm -hmm. result of the F-16. And after doing all the math and trying to figure it all out, the investigation board determined that in order to cause the partner plane to crash, the F-16 would have had to have flown just a couple of meters over it, like barely clipped right over it. But the board found that the F-16 pilot was correct in his testimony that he flew a thousand feet over the plane. So they determined there was no way that the F-16 could have caused the partner plane to crash. Hmm. At worst, there may have been a little bit of wake turbulence, but it wouldn't have been yeah. anything really bad. Sorry, Chris, that was kind of a red herring. Uh, that, that was thrown yeah. out at the beginning. Well, it's a good one. It's a good one. A good mystery. Yeah. So, I mean, the investigation really did spend a lot of time in going through that. Like I said, there's a crazy amount of math and physics that I can't wrap my head around that, you know, they try to figure out. So when, you know, they determine that the F-16 is not at fault, you know, they're really kind of zeroing in on what's going on with these oscillation forces and what's going on in the empanage with these rudder weights. So, you know, at this point, they're really looking at the tail of the plane. Mm -hmm. And when they're looking at the vertical stabilizer, which I mentioned is the part, you know, that points up on the tail, they realize that the vertical stabilizer actually had abnormal clearances in its attachment fittings to the fuselage structures and thus had a certain degree of freedom to move laterally. They put the wrong parts on? Well, it's like when they're looking at it, they're like, the vertical stabilizer shouldn't be able to move this much. So when they're looking at it, they realize the movement would only be less than a millimeter at the fittings, but because of the shape of the tail, the movements in the upper section could have been magnified by a ratio of 10 to 15, causing the vertical stabilizer to be exposed to torsional stresses. So like, you know, oh, torn sideways. Yeah. So the board thinks that the movement in the vertical stabilizer reached a level where the rudder was affected both aerodynamically through airflow disturbances and mechanically via the rudder hinges. This initiated rudder oscillations to a degree higher than the dampening capacity of the rudder balance weights. When the shroud doors failed, the conditions were further aggravated by turbulence from the then exposed gap between the fin and the rudder. So what they're realizing is that the fittings for the vertical stabilizer aren't quite right, which cause a little bit of movement at the base. But then, you know, since the tail or mm -hmm. the rudder is so tall, that's exaggerated at the top and it becomes much bigger. And if you remember, the APU isn't mounted correctly, which is causing some oscillations as well, which is also in the tail right below the vertical stabilizer, which might have 
magnified this. So it's constantly shaking and it's magnified shaking because it's fitted incorrectly. So it's like, right. It's just getting worse and worse. It's like if you have like a ruler in your hand, right? And you're like flapping it around. Yeah. You know, you, you, it's not moving a lot at the base, but the top part is moving a lot left yeah. and right. Yeah. Like a diving board. Yeah, that's a, actually a really good way to put it. The base of the diving board where it's attached doesn't really move, but then, you know, those forces move it all the way out. It's a little bit different because you're, you're jumping at the end of a diving board, yeah, but, but I think you get the idea. And it was at this time the, the board makes the, the realization that you made earlier. They discovered that the flight data recorder was subject to abnormally high vibrations because one of the parameters failed to record and one needle recorded some lines twice. The maintenance records for the flight data recorder showed it had been malfunctioning a lot prior to this flight. The investigation revealed conditions which most certainly led to an increase in vibration levels in the immediate vicinity of the flight data recorder installation. This condition was brought about by worn pins and sleeves in the vertical stabilizer attachment fittings. The board found that these pins and sleeves were not what they were supposed to be. So similar to the APU front support, these pins and sleeves were not the ones specified. It was the wrong parts in here. All four sleeves and two front pins did not conform to the specified hardness and their actual hardness yielded a tensile strength of a little more than 50% of the specified value. Okay, and we've covered entire plane crashes that occurred because of a missing bolt or pin, so... Right, you know, we talked about the downstop assembly forever in one yeah. episode, where it's like, yeah, just one little part's missing, and in that case, it caused a fire. So yeah, you're right, even the smallest part is important. That's why airplanes cost, you know, tens of millions of dollars, it's because... Everything has to be certified. Everything has to be tested. Everything has, has to be very specific. You know, you, all of these parts have to, be, have to conform to very high stress levels because you want to make sure that everything works, that nothing fails in flight. That's why flying is so safe. So going back to these specific parts in the flight data recorder, these were actually replaced before Partner received the aircraft in uh, 1986. Defective parts and components installed in the aircraft could only have been corrected by a precise target-oriented inspection and were not caught. Because, I mean, who's going to think to open up the flight data recorder and be like, oh, are the right needles in here? <laughs> it's, it's just like, a, like you would have to go out of your way to look at this, you know, to think that there's something wrong about it. So from May of 1986 to July of 1989, this plane was operated by Partner, and the investigation revealed that the wear in the vertical stabilizer attachment progressed at an abnormal rate. The wear created clearances in the joints, allowing the vertical stabilizer to vibrate when exposed to turbulent air. No indication of this was evident to maintenance personnel until July 1989 when the aircraft went in for inspection. The defective APU support passed through several inspections without comments being recorded. Yeah, the board thinks this may have been due to incomplete maintenance instructions. And remember, this is the part we talked about initially, that support at the front part of the APU. Mm -hmm. When the vertical stabilizer was inspected, they were supposed to remove the pins and sleeves for inspection, but instead used ultrasonic equipment without removing the pins and sleeves. This was not in compliance with instructions, and when mm -hmm. the operator's representative became aware of this, he did not approve the inspection. What? So at this point, they do go in and they visually inspect it. So this is, this is before the incident? Correct. Yeah, there was some service done on this plane in July of 1989. Okay which is not too long before this incident. So when they're doing this uh, inspection, you know, they're trying to like do ultrasonic equipment to look into the rudder without taking it apart. But, you know, when, you know, the supervisor becomes aware of it, you know, he doesn't improve the inspection. So then they have to visually inspect the vertical stabilizer attachment. So when they did do their visual inspection, they saw one of the pins and sleeves had a lot of wear and they replaced it. But the way they replaced it was substandard. We're going to talk about that more in a little second. So at this point, 
unacceptable levels of wear must have been present in the four attachments, but there was no outward visibility of this in the other three. They replaced the one set, leaving the other three attached. And normally, this is fine, but because the amount of wear was so high on the other three, the vertical stabilizer should have been unloaded and made sure it was in the correct position. Maintenance records did not reveal details as to how the work was carried out, so the board believes they did not unload the stabilizer, causing it to sag a little. The board also notes that the airplane should not have been accepted with the AC generator not working properly, and the minimum equipment list was not updated with this consideration. So what to summarize here, I know that was a lot that I just went through. The vertical stabilizer is held in place basically by four bolts. Uh-huh. They tried to shortcut the inspection. They got caught. So then when they you know took the bolts out to look at them, really, realistically, all four of them were worn down, but they only really noticed one of them. They replaced the one that they noticed, but really all four should have been replaced. And when they replaced the one, they didn't support the vertical stabilizer. They just removed it and put another one in. Right. They just kind of like left it in place. They kind of like, while the vertical stabilizer was still attached, they just kind of replaced the broken bolt instead of taking all four out, removing the vertical stabilizer, Uh and then reattaching it. I'm thinking about like, if you've ever taken a door off of its hinges, if you take the top hinge off, then it can like bend the bottom hinges without properly supporting it. That's a good way to think about it. I say that's a very, very comparable analogy because that's what happened here. Like I said, it did cause it to sag a bit. Yeah. So at this point, the board believes that while the aircraft was cruising, the vibrations in the tail section assumed catastrophic dimensions and started to affect the lateral stability of the aircraft. The oscillation could not be dampened by the tail structure and continued to increase. The reason for this must have been in the form of larger or added energy sources supporting the oscillations. So what they're saying is that, you know, this problem with the bolts, you know, creating that little bit of movement in the vertical Mm -hmm. stabilizer had been causing some oscillations that couldn't be dampened, but that there must have been some outside energy source that helped make it worse. They believe that that outside energy source was the APU vibrations. Mm -hmm. So they can't determine which triggered the other, but essentially, you know, like about like, what do they call it? Like harmonic oscillations. Like when oscillations combine, they can make each other way worse. It's like when waves hit each other. Yeah, and they go... Yeah. Right, and they can get like way bigger. Mm-hmm. Well, that was that's what was happening here. There were two different oscillations happening here, one in the vertical stabilizer, one in the APU, and the vibrations essentially synced up oh. to make like one super big vibration that made the weights in the vertical stabilizer knock the shroud doors off and just threw everything out of whack. Like whenever you, you're on a trampoline and you jump and you bounce someone super high. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Man, you're killing it with the analogies today. <laughs> so when the oscillations began, large amounts of energy were available from turbulent airflow flowing from the propellers. The tail control surfaces were subjected to loads in excess of design limitations and the control linkage to the cockpit was overloaded and failed. At this point, the board believes that the crew became aware that something in the tail was happening because they released a fire extinguisher in the APU. The board thinks that maybe the crew regained control of the aircraft at this point by reducing the engine power. The oscillating rudder then traveled to its maximum limit on both sides. The rudder balance weights on its leading edge hit the shroud doors, knocked them off. Then the rudder became jammed on the left side and was partially torn from its hinges after introducing enough yawing motion to initiate a rapid roll to the left. It all just started oscillating and it got to a point where they couldn't control the rudder anymore, like their control linkage broke. And it became stuck to the left, which, mm. I, you know, caused them to lose control of the plane. So it gets turned left and, yeah, that made them roll, like, like barrel roll, essentially? Well, it wouldn't be a barrel roll. Like, a barrel roll would be controlled by the ailerons. But, yeah, it's like, it might have made them go upside down. I can't say for certain. 
you know, they call that a rudder hard over. I think we've talked about that in the past. But yeah, it would just yaw them to the left, which, you know, would probably have created a roll and maybe started um, rolling them down. Mm -hmm. So that is what they think happened. Uh, And that's, you know, that's what ends up in the official report. I'm going to go through some of the findings here. I have a couple quick questions. Yeah. So after all that happened, how quickly did the plane go down? Do we know exactly? It would have been pretty quick. They were at cruising altitude of 22,000 feet. I don't know how fast they would have been falling down. I mean, assuming, oh man, I, I can't even make an assumption. It would have been within, if I had to give you a guess, within just a couple of minutes. And there's, at that point, there's nothing the crew could have done, right? Because yeah, their, their linkage to control the rudder was severed. It was severed and it was turning them hard. Right? Correct. Because the weights became jammed, mm. you know, because of all this vibration, which caused it, you know, to be hard over to the left. And did the jet flying over them have any impact whatsoever? Like even just the, the, the wake? No. Nothing. No, nothing. The wake was mild enough to where it wouldn't have caused anything. It was just coincidence that it happened at that time. Mm, yeah, it was just like it's just a red herring. Mm-hmm. I mean, a, a pretty good one, honestly. Yeah. Like you, you hear that, you think, oh, maybe that has something to do with it. It turns out it really had no impact. Wow. What a good, I mean, mystery, just like trying to figure all that out. Chris, I haven't even gotten to the shocking part of this yet. Oh, <laughs> we're no. gonna go, what? We're going to go through the findings and the recommendations here first, and then we're going to throw something in here. This is, that's a little teaser for what's going to come in a bit. So let's go through the findings first. Maintenance instructions in use for this plane did not reflect the current aircraft configuration. The operator's minimum equipment list system was not adjusted to reflect the actual configuration of the aircraft, and that's speaking to the fact that they needed two generators. The flight operations manager decided that the aircraft could be operated with the APU generator used as a substitute for the inoperative left-hand main AC generator. The pilot in command accepted the responsibility of operating the aircraft with the APU generator used as a substitute for the inoperative left-hand main AC generator prior to departure. This is just going over the thing we talked about initially where the generator wasn't working on the left side. The cockpit voice recorder became inoperative after an upshift in the engine RPM prior to departure. The flight data recorder registered three out of the four parameters pressure, altitude, heading, and airspeed. It also registered it was subject to vibrational forces from external sources. The aircraft's propellers and engines were operating normally. All horizontal tail structures and the rudder were subject to violent oscillations or flutter. I didn't even talk about that. So as part of this investigation, the board started interviewing passengers and crew who had been on this exact plane before the crash and was asking questions like, did the plane seem like it was vibrating a lot when you were on it? Like, Trying uh-huh. to figure out, like, how long was this problem going on? And, yeah, you know, some of the people who were passengers who sat in the back of the plane were like, yeah, I thought that was a really rough ride. It was weird. So there was, like, beyond just the, the mechanical part, there were, like, physical, noticeable issues. Yeah, that- there was ongoing oscillations in the tail for a while. So it would have been worse in the back. So that might explain why the pilots and, and crew might not have noticed it. True. Very true. Vital parts of the tail structure failed and caused loss of control of the aircraft. The flight crew did not identify the problems in time to take corrective action. The wings failed symmetrically under negative G-load. While the aircraft was still at high altitude, sheets of honeycomb from the shroud doors between the fin and the rudder were released and fell slowly into the water. We talked about that. That's what led to those um, radar returns. The vertical stabilizer was attached to the fuselage with pins and sleeves which did not comply with the specified values for hardness and tensile strength and were therefore not airworthy. Okay, this is the part. I'm going to blow your mind with a little bit. We didn't really talk about this before. That sounds like a strange sentence in itself. I'm going to read it one more time. 
The vertical stabilizer was attached to the fuselage with pins and sleeves, which did not comply with the specified values for hardness and tensile strength and were therefore not airworthy. So then you ask yourself, why were they using pins and sleeves that were not airworthy, that weren't strong enough? It turns out that they had uh, used counterfeit parts oh. when they performed this repair and that no one had really thought to look for this before uh-huh. this incident. So then it became a question of, well, where do these counterfeit parts come from? Is there a market for this? And these are, you say counterfeit as in like, I guess, unregulated parts, but is this purposeful or did like, they were like, oh, give me, give me the, give me the, the cheap stuff. Well, you're right. So an authentic, this bolt that we're talking about here mm-hmm. that attached the vertical stabilizer, an authentic bolt that is airworthy costs at the time cost about $250. The fake ones that are counterfeit cost $30. Oh, so I can't tell you for certain if the aircraft asked for the cheap ones or if a broker like a middleman bought the cheap ones and then charged the regular price and pocketed the money, you know? Oh, my. At the time, parts brokers in the U.S., it was largely unregulated. Anybody could be a parts broker. You could just like set up an office and say, I'm an aircraft parts broker. And we talked about this. Remember in American Airlines 965, I said that people had come and started looting the crash site to then resell the parts. That's kind of the same thing. So it's like parts that enter the market, like the black market. So this next little tangent I'm going to go on isn't necessarily directly related to this incident. But, you know, when the FAA hears about this in the United States, they start to wonder, like, is there a a counterfeit part problem in the United States? So the FAA maintains a parts inventory as well. So in order to try to figure out how extensive the problem is, the FAA decides to audit their own parts inventory that they have. Ooh. And this is, they're just like, they hear about this incident in Europe and they're like, we got to look at this, right? Right. So the FAA goes through their own inventory and they discover 39% of their inventory was bogus parts. What? So then this becomes a huge crisis. The problem was so widespread, fake parts were even found on Air Force One. What? Yeah. Like this, this, this incident became monumental as far as like supply chain management and keeping track of inventory and authentication of parts to make sure that only real parts are used in repairs. And this led to like over a hundred parts brokers were arrested in the United States. Oh shoot. They really had to crack down on this because this was, this is a major problem. (laughs) I I, I mean, you, you obviously understand this, but I, I cannot enforce how bad this is well we've talked about so many cases where it's like well this screw wasn't up to standards or this this is why the 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 hardification of of this metal became right more stringent it's it's, or the thickness of this or you know has to be exactly 0.00 millimeters or whatever it's like yeah i like i mean tolerances can be within like millimeters or fractions of a millimeter all of this and you know even metal hardness there has to be you know, all of this is really, really advanced technology. And, you know, nowadays it's even more advanced than it was yeah. back then. But this is so important to maintain all of this is done correctly and up to standards. And people aren't just trying to save some money or pocket some extra money themselves. But yeah, I thought that that was really interesting for this episode. I think that, that I mean, this is the reason I wanted to cover this incident was uh, what a profound change and what a widespread problem this turned out to be that no one had considered before this incident. Yeah, and that, that wasn't even... That seemed like a small thing we didn't even talk about much. Mm-hmm. That was like, oh, yeah, there were all these other problems and this one. Yeah, and there was a counterfeit part, which also, you know, who, who's to say if there were authentic bolts and parts there, 
maybe it would have held. You know, we can't say for certain that's speculation. The guy who did all the math I talked about earlier, maybe he could figure it out. But yeah, it's uh, it's just crazy to think that um, that counterfeit parts existed. Honestly, they probably still do exist. It might be a lot more difficult to get that stuff. Uh, well, if it was 40% and planes last for, what, like 30, 40 years, mm-hmm. there's probably some old bolts. Not to scare people, but... <laughs> well, I mean, fleets are largely updated now. I think fleets are... Most major airline fleets are, you know, the newest that they've been in a long time. Airlines are incentivized to upgrade their planes to newer ones just from a fuel efficiency standpoint. Mm. So, you know, most airlines want to get newer planes out nowadays in order to save money on fuel, which is, you know, one of their biggest operating costs. Different world back then when fuel was a lot cheaper. So I'm going to keep going through the findings here. The abnormal wear which had developed in the vertical fin attachment was not disclosed. The wear in the fin attachments led to vibrations developing into flutter. Undampened oscillations in the elevator contributed to the destruction of the empennage. The empennage, of course, is like the tail section. The APU was installed with a front support of inferior quality and unknown origin. Again, so they don't know about that specific part, but they don't know where it came from. So I don't know if that was a counterfeit one too or not. Faulty, out-of-date maintenance instructions and inadequate maintenance procedures left the problems in the APU's front support undetected. The airworthiness of the aircraft at the time it was transferred to Norway was based on the Canadian Certificate of Airworthiness, Owing to the fact that the maintenance instructions were incomplete, the basis on which this certificate of airworthiness was issued may have been unsound. So they had partnered actually acquired this from a Canadian company, which is why we're talking about Canada here. Uh-huh. So there's just some questions about the certificate of airworthiness, uh, which is something a plane needs in order to be operational. And even though it had the certificate, maybe it shouldn't have had it. Yeah. The airworthiness requirements for the aircraft were not met while it was in service in Norway as the minimum equipment list and maintenance instructions had not been updated to include systems and components currently installed in the aircraft. So in the end, like we said, the accident was caused by a loss of control due to destruction of primary control surfaces in the tail section, which in turn was caused by aeroelastic oscillations initiated by abnormal clearances in the vertical stabilizer attachments to the fuselage structure. So again, just talking about these oscillations caused Stuff to fail in the tail. The condition of the attachments was a result of excessive wear in pins and sleeves used in the structural joint. The pins and sleeves were of an inferior quality and did not satisfy the specified values for hardness and tensile strength. Mm-hmm. They had been installed and inspected using substandard maintenance procedures. Undampened oscillations in the elevator contributed to the structural failure of the empennage. The vibratory patterns in the empennage and the oscillations in the surfaces were affected by the fact that the AP was operating with a faulty front support which was of a non-standard design and unknown origin. So again, like we said, this had been an ongoing problem. The the mounts for the vertical stabilizer had been an ongoing problem. It was most likely going to fail and cause an incident eventually, but the fact that they ran the APU as well on this flight at the same time just exacerbated the problem because it was also vibrating and led to this like harmonic oscillation that yeah. was unrecoverable. So there were some recommendations. And as you would guess, The airline had financial problems at the time of the accident and filed for bankruptcy shortly after the accident. Therefore, the board considers it important for aviation authorities to include financial consideration in their assessment of an operator's ability to operate safely. So when they're looking at airlines to give them their status, they're like, are you in bad financial trouble? Because if so, that's... Right, yeah. yeah. They realize they could have a negative effect on safety. Yeah, yeah, first we laughed like, oh, they didn't pay their catering bill. But then like, you start scratching like, why is that? <laughs> you know, what, what else is going on here? Let's pull this vibrating thread. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's like, oh, then you start to realize, oh, there's a lot of other stuff going on. 
The board also recommended that the Civil Aviation Administration of Norway consider adjusting the existing supervisory system to improve its ability to deal with aircraft requiring special attention, also to require aviation authorities to follow up the introduction of a mandatory quality assurance system. So again, just more checks, more thorough investigation on these things. The investigation has revealed a history of vibration problems in the empennage on this type of aircraft, which was not known to all operators. In other cases, it has been found that important information did not reach all those operators to which information applied. The board recommends the Civil Aviation Administration of Norway review the requirements for new operators to obtain access to an aircraft's operations and maintenance history. This requirement should apply when primary acceptance inspections are being carried out. So like I said, they had only acquired this plane like three years before this incident. You know, the history of maintenance and problems should be more transparent and should Mm. be, you know, more explicitly talked through when the plane is actually transferred through ownership. Yeah. It's like buying a used car. You Sometimes you don't really know what the history of the car is. You know, they'd be like, oh, it's it's a rand, an only, only an old lady who went drove it once a week to church. It's like, no, no, no. We need like documentation of what really happened and what the history is because it's like safety and people's lives right. are at risk. Yeah. This, <laughs> this is, uh, you know, flying in the air. Yeah. Like you said, people's lives are at stake here. So the board recommends that the Civil Aviation Administration of Norway considers establishing a requirement for operators to keep an updated master flight manual at the aircraft's home base. This relates to the minimum equipment list and just making sure that that information is more readily available. So after this accident, Partner grounded the other two conveyors that it had and laid off 17 of its 45 employees. Their King Air fleet remained in operation. Uh, The company had a poor financial situation before the accident, which was severely aggravated by the accident. And by October of 1989, the airline was attempting to sell the conveyors, and they eventually filed for bankruptcy on October 11th of 1989. At the time, they had very few assets, and they were about 15 to 20 million kroner in debt. I don't know exactly how much that is. Currently, right now, one kroner is about 11 cents. Uh, mm. So you'd say 10 kroner is roughly a dollar. So they were, what is that then? One and a half to two million dollars in debt, roughly, if at, at today's rate i didn't seem that much but it's also 1989 money yeah that's a lot more uh and with the exchange rate it may have been more as well so let's say two to three million dollars in debt but it probably would have been more and more because as this case and lawsuits and so and so ensued right they had and they had no asset or very few assets it was just they probably saw the writing on the wall yeah and at the time actually all their aircraft that they had at the time were leased uh so it's like they didn't even have those assets all of their assets were taken over by a new company, which was Nye Partner, which I guess means new partner. Mm-hmm. Nye Partner was incorporated in January of 1990, bought large portions of the estate in bankruptcy. Uh, this gave it an initial fleet of four Beechcraft Super King Air and one Beechcraft King Air. Nye Partner was initially based at the Haugersund Airport in Karmoy, uh, relocated to the stored airport in Source Co- Token in May of 1991, changed its name to Air Stored. They remained in business until February 19th, 1999. So, you know, even though the airline went away, like a new airline kind of formed and operated for another 10 years and eventually went out of business uh, on its own. This was actually the deadliest disaster in Danish aviation history. Wow. Which that's, I'm surprised because there's only, there were only 55 like, people. Yeah. yeah. There was a bit of a gruesome detail uh, that I discovered when I was reading, you know, doing some research on this. Uh-huh. I didn't know where to talk about it before, but this incident like when when the accident happened it was so violent like the the forces that the plane suffered and the plane went through that when the medical examiners were you know examining the the crew they discovered that the first officer had swallowed a toothpick whole 
Oh my God. Yeah. Like I guess he had a toothpick in his mouth when they were flying. Then the incident happened and it was so violent that oh he my God. swallowed the entire toothpick, which I thought was like, it just sounds so painful. Yeah. I can't imagine that happening. Uh, just like, like in your mind, I know you were asking like, how long did it take, you know, before they actually crashed? Like just to reinforce in your mind how violent this was and what happened. Like that was just like a little tidbit that I discovered when we were looking into this. Wow. But that's it. That's Partner 394. Like the, the deadliest disaster in Danish aviation history and also a super influential incident that really made the industry all around the world look at supply chain for parts and, you know, authentication and, you know, change the way that maintenance is looked at even to this day. It's, uh, it's really, really amazingly groundbreaking. Yeah. Also, what is groundbreaking is the amazing animation that uh, <laughs> that's in the Black Box Down um, Aviation Explained animation. Um, I know we've talked about it several times now. Gus, how, what, 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 the first episode, like what, what do we cover? Like just so people get a the tease of the first what it episode is, is uh, the Asiana Airlines flight that crashed on approach when it was coming in to land uh, at San Francisco. I forget what episode that was for us. Mm-hmm. That one's out as well as the second episode, which was the incident where the planes get lost in the fog on the taxiways and runways at the Detroit mm-hmm. airport, which was a very confusing episode. So yeah. if in your mind you can't picture what all those runways look like, you can watch the animation to see how it's all actually laid out. And that first one, just to if, if this is piques your interest, it's about slam dunk landings. That's right. So it's about planes coming in that they have to like zoom down. And then this particular incident, it actually does have a slam dunk where it's like the back of the plane Bugdunks. Yeah. That's the technical term. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, go check those out. They're on YouTube, uh, on our Black Box Down uh, YouTube channel and at roosterteeth.com. Yep. And in our link tree. And in our link tree. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead and uh, give us a subscribe. We have a few more episodes coming out of that. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you guys next week. Oh, and don't forget to our merch. Bye.